Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, the mystery of a huge hole 60 feet deep that appeared overnight on one of California's most iconic mountains. People would go up there and look in this hole and just sort of scratch their chins and say, what on earth? What were they looking for? And women are running for office in record numbers this year. We'll meet a political novice running for city council in Orange County. I'm qualified. I'm a hard worker. I believe in including all of our community, and I make decisions based on critical thinking and doing my homework. But first, a unique summer camp in the Eastern Sierra, where young men of color open up about what it means to be a man. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Kids are heading back to school these days, taking stock of what they've learned over the summer, maybe through sports camp, drama camp, or maybe masculinity camp. The Sons and Brothers Camp brings young men of color from cities across California to the woods of the Eastern Sierra, and they spend a week grappling with ideas about manhood, violence, and emotions. This year, some youth journalists went to camp, too, to document the experience. Rudy Cardoso Peraza from the youth media outlet Voice Waves followed one young camper and brings us this story. Kylo Singsay is 15. He's tall and slender, with a gentle and quiet demeanor. But Kylo's neighborhood in Long Beach is anything but gentle and quiet. Definitely a lot of gang violence and poverty. Even at school. A lot of the young youth members, they like want to act cool, you know, so then they try to be part of a gang, right, which leads them to selling drugs, which leads them to get beat up or something like that. Last year, Kylo himself had a knife pulled on him, leaving scratch marks on his chest. Just last week, two boys in Cambodia town, Long Beach, were shot in a possibly gang-related incident. Before he was born, Kylo's parents immigrated as refugees from Cambodia and Thailand. My grandpa, he didn't know English, nor did my dad or my mom. So then, like, they would struggle to find food or like money. Kylo's parents moved often and he attended seven different elementary schools. My dad, he always had to go to work. And then my mom, she had an alcohol addiction so she didn't really like was there for me. Hey, somebody! And I won't be stopped by nobody! But now, Kylo finds himself more than 500 miles away from the streets of Long Beach. Immersed in pine trees and mountain air with about 150 other young men from cities all over the state. One, two, three. First stop, ropes course. Ready? Can I trust y'all? Kylo's got to trust his teammates to help him as he scales a 10-foot wooden wall. 
Behind the wall is our future self. So to get to that, you gotta get over the wall. Next, a rope swing and a blindfold. But this time, Kylo has to state one of his deepest fears before taking the jump. Being isolated and being alone, he says, with no family and no one that loves him anymore. Somebody! And I won't be stopped by nobody! Kylo jumps from a platform 40 feet in the air. Even though they're wearing safety harnesses, some youth stay frozen in fear on the platform for more than half an hour as their teammates cheer them on from below. I'm not really afraid of heights, but once I got up, I was like, oh snap, I'm pretty high, you know? But I still had the thought in mind that I had like my teammates down there that was supporting me. Kylo's learning to rely on others, confronting his fear, and thinking about the challenge of dealing with masculinity as a young man of color. Understanding yourself is a big part in like masculinity, right? Society shows how men are supposed to be instead of like what they really are. Kylo says some young men turn to gangs and violence to hide their feelings. I know people that are in gangs and stuff, they're soft, like they have their soft side. But sometimes I feel like they just need to show it and finally like realize like you don't have to join a gang to be safe. The camp takes in vulnerable young men from all over California. We all need help. And helps them heal together. You're not alone anymore. One of the most anticipated events of the camp is a healing circle around the fire called Circulo. It's sacred and could not be recorded. Black and brown elders and young men open up to each other about their greatest hopes and their darkest traumas. I know this is a time for us to like, drop our, I guess, what's hurting us right now. Afterwards, Kylo says bonding with his camp brothers around the fire gave him some new ideas about who he wants to become. Every morning when you wake up before you even move, like, just pray and just appreciate that you're awake and your eyes have opened. As the camp draws to a close, Kylo says he wants to show more gratitude to his family and friends. With my parents, I never talk to them about, like, my life sometimes. So I feel like I, I'm going to start doing that more. All the things the elders said, I feel like it really helped me how to be more thankful for the people around me and the people I love because, like, sometimes you'll never know when they'll be gone, right? Hey, somebody! With the strength of brotherhood and a higher vision, Kylo says he'll return home to Long Beach, more empowered to rise above the challenges in this community. For the California Report, I'm Rudy Cardoso Peraza at the Sons and Brothers Camp in Portola, California. So I asked Rudy what it was like to go to camp as a journalist and follow Kylo for the week. You know, having a similar background, I, I completely get where he's coming from. I've gone through like so many similar situations that in high school so that kind of made me a little bit more motivated to like hey let's get this guy you know to um talk to us and let's work on the stories together rudy wasn't the only young journalist at sons and brothers camp Jaden cornett from crescent city wrote the script for kylo's story i think young people can tell a young person's story from a young person's perspective has some credibility to it. Maybe it can be more of a pure form of, of the truth. And Randy Villegas from Kern County helped record the sound for the story. It was really inspiring and amazing to do this story, not only seeing Kylo, but seeing all of the young men from all different parts of California coming together, rising up together, and truly embracing each other through brotherhood.
After the 2016 election, something changed for Betty Valencia. She was a VP in auto financing in her hometown of Orange in, you guessed it, Orange County. And she was at a city council meeting watching her city's leaders vote to oppose California's sanctuary policies. As an immigrant and a lesbian in her very conservative hometown, she decided the only thing to do was to run for city council herself. We found Betty after putting out a call on Facebook to women candidates in California running for local office for the first time. And we've asked her to keep an audio diary this election season for a series we're calling The Long Run. Let's take a listen as Betty tells us about how another Latina candidate nearly 3,000 miles away gives her inspiration. Today was a very busy day and we started off with canvassing with a group of eight volunteers. Many people were not home and a few did open the door. Because this is such a conservative city, we're questioned about, for example, today somebody asked two of the canvassers if I was an immigrant. On the other side of the spectrum, a man asked how I will deal with running in such a conservative town being a progressive candidate. And the answers are all the same. I'm qualified. I'm a hard worker. I believe in including all of our community and I make decisions based on critical thinking and doing my homework. And sometimes I feel like I'm put through the ringer, honestly, but I have to stay honest and stay focused and repeat my message that I am qualified, that I'm a qualified candidate and I'm running as I am. Don't get me wrong, there were plenty of people who had questions about my qualifications, my objectives, why I wanted to run, or how I was going to change things. I think of it as their test. And once I spent five minutes with them, our conversations changed from interrogations to conversations, and the relationships started then to form. And really, nobody can walk away feeling unsatisfied when you look at somebody, when you can look at somebody in the eyes and generally have an interest in what they have to say. The sense of being counted included is something I think we all long for, especially in our leaders. I'm recording this piece in my car as I reflect on the events of July 30th, just this past month, uh, clearly a day I will never forget. And I wanted to share my experience of having Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez visit me at our home. And we were a fairly small group waiting to greet Alexandria before an award dinner. I was fairly nervous to greet her because I had no idea how she would perceive our small race, right? This is city council and what she did in New York was, in my eyes, huge. We didn't really talk about my platform, my stance on issues. We spoke about our stories. I shared with her how I came to this country from Mexico. I pointed to an old paper next to my picture and explained to her that that was when I obtained residency under the amnesty in the 80s. I showed her my first report card from Mexico and then proceeded to speak about Dolores Huerta, the first person to endorse me. And on along, she just listened and we found this common thread that we both came from these stories where the likelihood of having this success isn't necessarily something people expect. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is 28 years old and I'm 47, but we're both willing to work for what we believe in, 
which is to be included and heard. This is a historic moment for Orange and for California. We can't outspend our opponent, but like Ocasio-Cortez said, we can outwork them. This is how we're gonna win. I just hope people see that and come on board and help us really meet this goal. Next week, we'll meet Janelle Horn, who's trying to disrupt what she calls the good old boys club in the race for recorder clerk in El Dorado County. You can hear from more women first-time candidates in our series on Facebook. Just look for The Long Run KQED. These days, it seems especially hard to nail down what exactly is the truth. So what do we do when we're presented with something we can't explain? Like a 60-foot deep hole that appeared overnight on California's tallest volcano. Reporter Kat Shooknecht tells us about the mystery of the bizarre hole on Mount Shasta and why a guy who works at an old-school video store might have some answers. Shasta tonight has likely showers of snow. About 10 years ago, the Forest Service was doing a routine patrol on Mount Shasta near the Oregon border when they discovered a giant hole. The thing looked like a mine shaft. You could have fit a semi-truck in it. And from what the agents could tell, someone had dug the hole by hand, using buckets on a makeshift pulley system to haul the dirt out. The only clues the diggers left behind were a ladder, some buckets, and a plastic water bottle. The incident was written up in the local newspaper, and everyone in town had a theory about who was responsible. Elijah Sullivan has heard all of them. People would go up there and look in this hole and just sort of scratch their chins and say, what on earth was this about? What were they looking for? Elijah grew up in Mount Shasta. Most people know me as the guy from the video store. And he spent the last six years tracking three theories about why someone dug the hole and what they were looking for inside the mountain all for a documentary film he's working on, which he's calling The Whole Story. All the different competing theories very much mirrored everybody's different beliefs around here. The first, and admittedly the weirdest theory about what the diggers were looking for at the bottom of the hole, starts with people who Shasta locals call seekers. So, let me just show you something. This is Bev Wilson. She runs a crystal shop in Mount Shasta. You want to just back up a little bit because it's pretty loud. She's trying to explain something to me that's difficult to put into words. She's trying to explain the concept of Lemuria. So this hole is as close to Lemuria as I can get you from here. It opens up a portal, that's all. A portal to Lemuria, which is a lost continent like Atlantis that some people believe is hidden beneath Mount Shasta along with its capital, crystalline city, Telos. The name Lemuria comes from a 19th century English zoologist. He believed that lemurs had used the lost continent as a land bridge to migrate from India to Madagascar. Seekers is the word Shasta locals like Elijah use as a kind of catch-all for people who feel drawn to Mount Shasta by spiritual forces, from occultists and Buddhists to channelers and shamanic healers. I mean, I think we have 92 religions here. (laughs) Seriously. There's a poster sticker that says we're all here because we're not all there. (laughs) And some seekers have made it their quest to find Lemuria, hence the digging. 
our first thought was just, you know, somebody who believes the stories about the mountain is looking for Lemuria. Even Elijah's own parents are seekers, drawn to the mountain by spiritual forces. People make pilgrimages here. Like, that is that is what it is. It's, so, it's like a New Age Mecca. You'll hear a lot of people talking about Lemuria, maybe even asking for directions. Um, you'll have to tell me when you find it. <laughs> the second theory about why someone decided to dig a giant hole on Mount Shasta 10 years ago is a little more tangible. And it gets at a very different part of the area's history. There was actually a pretty long history of Native American artifact looting here. And it makes sense because the Native, there's so, so many tribes have been here over so many centuries. Digging for artifacts like arrowheads or human remains without a permit is a serious crime. And this happens more than you might think. A few years ago, there was a big looting investigation just across the border in Oregon's Klamath County. I called two Oregon State police officers who have worked on looting cases. When I described this hole to them, they said, oh yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like looters. I talked to the Forest Service and they actually disagree with Elijah's sources. They told me there aren't a lot of Native American artifacts on the mountain. But that doesn't mean that local tribes approved of the hole. Good night, my love. We heard about the hole. <laughs> Forest Service didn't catch it until it was like, what, 30 feet deep or 60? That's Colleen Sisk. She's the leader of the Winnemum Wintu tribe, which is indigenous to the McLeod River area of Northern California. We met for coffee, and she told me that she's not a fan of people who come to Mount Shasta seeking fulfillment, whether spiritual or material. Too often, they alter the mountain. They leave trash or they wander off the trails. I mean, it's like eating the goose that lays the golden egg. It's like here they've got this golden egg going, but they're killing the goose. See, Mount Shasta is sacred to the Winnemum Wintu. We came out of that mountain, and so we're um, obligated to be the watchers of this mountain. We're trying to save this mountain. Colleen likes to say that those who recreate wreck their creation. <laughs> and they do it for fun, recreating. <laughs> uh, we don't go above the tree line. We can revere that mountain and we can think it's beautiful and we can know that it's powerful without climbing to the top. The problem is the city of Mount Shasta really counts on the money that visitors bring in. Hello, Couch Critics. Who am I speaking? Even Couch Critics, the video shop where Elijah works when he isn't making his documentary about the hole, benefits from tourism. One of our customers makes little Lemuria-themed things, so here's our penny tray with a Lemuria sticker. The walls of the shop are covered with movie posters and action figures, and there's a small TV in the corner that's always playing some obscure or culty movie. Everyone who comes in knows Elijah. And they all want to know about the hole. And here, in the video shop, we arrive at theory number three, about why someone dug the mysterious 60-foot hole on Mount Shasta. You don't Stay. work for the Forest Service, do you? Yes, I do. You do? Yeah. Did you ever see that hole that was up on Mount Shasta in 2009 that they found? The what? They found this big... The hole? I was one of the people that found it. Bingo. Discovered it was these guys that had apparently purchased a 
mining claim deed from some dude that had said that there was all this gold there. And so Did you catch that? He said the diggers were looking for gold. Oh, I love that. It's, it's, so, you know, being a small town doesn't always suck, right? I mean, that, yeah, I don't even mind that I'm working for minimum wage because I just, I just cracked a case, you know, right, right before your eyes. Yeah, you must have liked that, huh? Yeah. Like, that was like, you thought, like, I'm going to get this. Maybe he'll say something interesting while he's giving me a tour of his nerd palace, you know, but it's like, <laughs> the case breaks right there. <laughs> Finding it's always a little bit of an adventure. There used to be a trail, and the trail has slowly disappeared over the years, and now it's like, just completely gone. And the trail was created by the diggers. This is where it was. We're standing on the spot where the uh, hole was. Elijah and I are standing in the middle of a forest on Mount Shasta, and it's kind of a mess. The hole was completely filled in soon after it was discovered, and the area looks like it's been logged pretty recently. Elijah tells me that someone with a phony mining claim was eventually prosecuted for digging the hole. I talked to the Forest Service and they agree. The diggers were looking for gold, which wouldn't be totally unprecedented. There is a history of gold rush era mining in the area. But the Forest Service told me that because of the volcanic geology near the hole, there's probably no gold there. So case closed. But no matter what the diggers were looking for, an underground world, Native American artifacts, or gold, Elijah isn't ready to let go of the mystery just yet. There's always going to be questions. And even with the documents, then it's going to become, so which person's telling the truth? Are any of these people telling the truth? It's a perfect blank slate for people to project. It's just a hole. It's just like, what do you think this was? It's like a, like a Rorschach test, but even more abstract. It's just a hole. And so every conceivable thing that a person would look for is at the bottom of that hole to somebody. Elijah points to a white five-gallon bucket at the base of a nearby tree. It's sturdy and cracked and lying on its side among the discarded branches, like it's just been kicked over. It's the kind of bucket you'd use for mixing paint or for moving dirt. That's still there after nine years. I ask Elijah what kind of ending he imagines for his documentary. The way I imagine that would end is, you know, they wouldn't have found what they were looking for. Something interrupted the process. One Forest Service person told me that they got interrupted and at that time they thought they were three feet from their goal. Maybe it is down there, but instead of 63 feet, it's 66 feet. That's right, it's right there. Um, I like the idea of it ending in um, a little mystery. Right, that's a good ending. For the California Report, I'm Kat Shooknecht in Mount Shasta. Next week on our show, we'll bring you a groundbreaking investigation about sexual harassment in the yoga world, where teachers can have a lot of power over their students. How do I explain that this morning I was so angry that I wanted to scream out loud? that I wonder if I'll ever be able to practice yoga asana again or feel safe as a student in a yoga studio. 
we'll hear about allegations of inappropriate touch, groping, and harassment. The Me Too movement is just catching on in this industry that's growing in California, but yoga studios don't have much regulation or oversight. That's next week on the California Report magazine. And now another letter to my California dreamer. We've been asking listeners to write to somebody in your family who came to the Golden State with a dream. This week's letter is from Katrine Siofa from Sonoma County. She addressed it to herself. Dear Self, you were a California dreamer since you first watched Hair at your neighborhood movie theater in Hamburg, Germany at 13. Later, the Grateful Dead, combined with a solid dose of psychedelics, confirmed that San Francisco was the place to be. Of course, it was the 80s, and you were more than 20 years late to that particular party, but that didn't stop you. As a graduate student at the University of Hamburg, you applied to a bunch of colleges for internship opportunities and counseling the primary criteria being that the campus was in or near San Francisco. Europeans tend to not quite grasp the vast expanses of the American West, and on a map it seemed like UC Davis and UC Santa Cruz were basically just right next to the Golden Gate. Alas, neither of them welcomed you in. Instead, it was Sonoma State University, located in the city of Rohnert Park. Who had ever heard of that? Rohnert Park was most definitely not San Francisco, but it was mercifully close to it. With the assistance of Golden Gate Transit and a dear new friend of a friend with a tiny apartment in the Mission District, you set out to capture your personal version of the California dream. 25 years later, you are still here with a California husband, a daughter born in Santa Rosa, and your 93-year-old mom, who sold her house in Hamburg and moved to the Sonoma wine country 10 years ago. Seems like the California dream is contagious across generations. What a long, strange trip it's been. Peace and love, Katrine. We'd love to hear your letter to one of your family's California dreamers, or maybe like Katrine, you were the first in your family to come to California with a dream. So check out the form we've got on californiareport.org and take a few minutes to tell us your story. We might ask you to record it to air here on the California Report magazine. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Rob Spate is behind the board this week. And we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Seal Muller. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our online producer. And our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. 
Special thanks this week to Michael Lozano with Long Beach Voice Waves and to Youthwire and Redwood Voice. Our editorial team includes Katie Orr, Miranda Leitzinger, Bianca Taylor, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.